Welcome to the Employment Law Association of Ireland's second podcast on COVID-19, whistleblowing and the return to work. Welcome to the Employment Law Association of Ireland's second podcast on COVID-19. And today we're going to be discussing whistleblowing and health and safety issues around the return to the workplace. And I have a fantastic panel here with me today. Firstly, my name is Colleen Cleary. I'm from CC Solicitors and I'm on the Employment Law Association of Ireland's committee. And here in attendance today, I also have Lauren Tennyson, the barrister, who's also actually on the committee and well known to us. She's a practicing barrister since 2007, specializing in employment and equality law. She appears regularly before the WRC, Labour Court, Circuit Court and High Court in employment law disputes, as well as in employment mediation. She advises and acts for large multinationals as well as medium sized enterprises. And she's also frequently engaged to act as an independent investigator in workplace investigations. I've also got Paul Daniels uh, from the UK. Um, he's a top-ranked employment lawyer in the UK uh, with wide-ranging expertise across all areas of employment law, including executive dismissal, whistleblowing. Uh, his portfolio cases include complex high-value international matters, which see him acting for partners, MPs, fund man- managers, city executives and sports stars. Now, a number of our committee members will be very impressed. Um, he's acted for a number of sports clients, probably most of which I've never heard of, but I'm sure that they will, so I will read them out. Uh, Roy Hodgson, Mark Hughes, David Moyes, I've heard of him, Nick Barnby, Avrance Grant, Steve McLaren, and so on. Paul also sits as an employment tribunal judge following his appointment back in 2005. I'm also delighted to have uh, Judy O'Lone. Judy O'Lone from Transparency Legal Island. She's a graduate in law with French from Queen's University, Belfast. She uh, started her career in the European Commission and Parliament. She's worked in London as a leading human rights firm covering PI litigation against the state. And she's now currently working as in-house counsel with Transparency Legal Advice Centre here in Dublin. So everybody's very welcome. So what we're going to be speaking about is, like I said, COVID-19 and whistleblowing and health and safety issues around the return to the workplace. And I think as we all know already, under Irish law, there are existing protections for people that do have concerns um, about their work environment and their workspace from a health and safety perspective and what can they do. Now, obviously, a number of workers are already working in, um, and have continued to work throughout the crisis, such as essential workers, such as healthcare workers, and those workers in food and transport. But there is going to be a whole swathe of new employees coming back into the workplace, including kind of employees in retail and restaurants. And what do they do when they're concerned about the health and safety issues that they may face coming back into work? There's going to be a lot of anxiety around that. Now, there are some channels where employees can um, disclose and make kind of um, raise issues with their employers under existing legislation, particularly under the for health workers under the Health Act, uh, Section 101. There's also Section 27 under Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act, the Criminal Justice Act, and of course also the Protected Disclosures Act 2014. Now, some of you just, I suppose it's topical, and it was alerted to me by our committee chair, Anne Lyon. There was a case in the paper yesterday, um, specifically on the Protected Disclosures Act, and it's worth just considering because there may be a written judgment, I think Anne tells me, in and around the 16th of July. And this case kind of demonstrates how tricky really the whole issue is around the protected disclosure and getting a case to shoehorn into that particular piece of legislation. And this case concerned Kilturnan Cemetery, and it involved a general manager applying for an interim injunction, preventing his termination or his dismissal. Um, the issue really did turn around um, the fact that they didn't put he didn't put his claim within 
the 21-day limit time period. But there's some interesting things that the judge certainly said verbally yesterday, insofar as he didn't accept the arguments by the um, employee that waiting for an appeal or exploring or waiting for the, uh, his application for a new job, which is a bit unusual in itself, was it sufficient for the delay. And the judge emphasised circumstances where somebody is legally advised that basically you're not going to get over the kind of the time limit of 21 days if you, unless you are going to put your claim within that period. He also made some very interesting comments, according to Anne as well, around the whole issue that he didn't feel that the dismissal in any event was wholly and mainly related to the protected disclosure that he had made. And the protected disclosure he had made was around the fact that he alleged there were planning issues. And he kind of made some comments as well, apparently, that, you know, really this, this was being used as a vehicle to up the ante in terms of his exit package. So perhaps what we need to think about uh, in COVID-19 is really that this is really mainly a health and safety issue. And maybe we need to strip this back and think to ourselves, actually, this is just a health and safety type scenario that we have to face. And maybe that's where we need to focus our attention as employment lawyers and employment advisors. So in that context, um, a little bit of a long-winded introduction, but in that context, I suppose what we need to look at and the main piece of legislation, or not, not so much legislation, but the main piece that we need to look at is the return to work protocol. And I think we've all seen the return to work protocol, which is basically a collaboration of effort by the HSC and a number of other union and government bodies and employer representatives, which has produced this extensive plan for return to work. Um, it introduces novel issues such as worker representatives and health and safety checklists. And really, this is, you know, turning to Lauren, first of all, looking at that return to work protocol. What are the issues around the return to work protocol that, as you see and, and the status of that document? I think that would be quite an interesting place to start, Lauren. Maybe you could kind of reflect on that. Yes, Colleen. Um, well, first of all, just to say that the return to work safely protocol is a COVID-19 specific national protocol and it should be used by all employers to adapt to their workplace procedures and practices to comply fully with the COVID-19 related public health protection measures. There are detailed um, but clear terms for both employers and employees in relation to the steps which they must take before a workplace reopens and also while it continues to operate. And you'll be aware that the HSA, the Health and Safety Authority website contains checklists for both employers and employees. So it, it, there will be a lot of preparatory work involved for employers and their management in getting their business ready for the gradual reopening and the return to work on site of their uh, employees. Now, in relation to the legal status or otherwise of the protocol, the Health and Safety Authority has oversight and the authority has been assigned responsibility for overseeing compliance and enforcing the protocol. HSA inspectors will provide advice and support to employees and employers on how they're implementing the COVID-19 measures in the workplace. They have the power to visit the workplace and advise on any shortcomings through an inspection report. And they can include timelines and any follow-ups with employers if needed. They also have the power to serve an improvement notice on employers, requiring that certain improvements be carried out in a specific time frame, or a prohibition notice directing that a specified work activity be stopped. And they also have the authority to shut a business down. So the HSA has extensive powers of enforcement in relation to the protocol. Now, 
as the HSA is the designated oversight authority, essentially the powers which are provided for in the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act 2005 vis-a-vis -vis the HSA and their inspectorate will apply to the protocol. The protocol is mandatory and it does essentially provide for the standard set of measures for each workplace. One thing to note from the protocol, it confirms that in relation to reporting, there is no requirement for an employer to notify the HSA if an employee contracts COVID-19. I understand that the HSA plans to roll out a video training package for employers in relation to the protocol, which should be quite helpful uh, for employers in terms of their prep preparation work. Um, the document itself uh, refers to itself as being a living document. Therefore, we need to remember that it is open to change and amendment. And certainly it, that will depend on the ongoing public health advice and government decisions which are taken over the coming weeks and months ahead. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for that. And then, Judy, would you agree the focus is very much on health and safety under the uh, in, in the whole return to work scenario and plan that's ahead for workers returning, new workers returning into the workplace? Yes, I would agree that that is the central preoccupation of many workers is that their safety will be protected. I mean, I think the situation with many office workers at the minute is if, you know, um, you can work from home, continue to work from home um, stay off public transport if you can. I mean, I suppose there's still a question on whether people should be wearing masks. All of that, you know, is to the forefront of, of, of people's minds at the moment. Um, it's interesting that, that, you know, the language of the protocol, it's very prescriptive, you know, it's must and shall. So I agree with Lauren that there is a lot of work to do before employers can um, um, invite their employees to come back into the office. Um, Transparency International Ireland had um, a webinar with Trisha King last week and she was mentioning that the HSA have increased the number of inspectors from 67 to 500. So um, they're pretty serious about, you know, going around and checking that workplaces are compliant with the protocol. And I think, Colleen, you're right when you say, I mean, the Health, Safety and Welfare Work Act will essentially take centre stage, you know, for the next year and, and beyond. Um, hopefully um, things will improve on the COVID-19 front by that stage. And what, um, from my perspective and from my practice, I mean, I advise employees who um, wish to raise their safety concerns or other concerns of wrongdoing in the workplace. And the disclosure provisions under the Health, Safety and Welfare at Work Act are interesting because they are quite different from the Protected Disclosures Act. So Section 27.3 says that an employer shall not penalise or threaten penalisation against an employee for making, and this is key, a complaint or representation to his safety representative or employer on any matter regarding health, safety and welfare at work act or at work. So, I mean, this is quite different from a protected disclosure. Clearly, you know, the evidential burden is not as heavy um, a, a complaint or representation vis-a-vis -a, -vis a protected disclosure. Another interesting provision in that legislation is that an employer cannot penalise an employee for raising safety concerns or penalise them for leaving or refusing to return to a place of work where they believe that there is danger which is serious and imminent. 
So um, I think probably all employers will be re-familiarising themselves with the provisions of that legislation. And quite recently, there was a case in the WRC, a forklift driver via paint coating supplier, an employee who claimed she was unfairly dismissed after she raised safety concerns. And she was awarded 84,759 by the WRC, which is high damages in that tribunal. She was accused of stealing paint and disposing of her own personal rubbish at work, though she had been employed for 31 years with an unblemished record, but had raised safety concerns whenever they came to her notice throughout her employment. And the WRC found that the reason for her dismissal had been contrived and that the real reason was that it was because she had raised the safety concerns. Her dismissal was therefore found to be less favourable treatment and amounting to penalisation. And um, it's also important to note that there's no cap on the level of compensation under that Act, whereas under the Protected Disclosures Act, if you're dismissed for having made a protected disclosure, it's capped at five years' salary. So I think probably what's important here, there are different disclosure provisions in different Acts which are still live, and um, the protected PDA is the one that most people use, but it may not always be suitable, you know, in the current circumstances. Thanks, Judy. I mean, I think that's really interesting that, you know, the health and safety legislation is going to take centre stage. And I know that you do a lot of PDA queries and issues. And, you know, that view from you, I think, is really important. And, you know, thanks. Thank you for that, because I think that gives a lot of insight to our members as how to approach um, uh, COVID-19 and the whole health and safety issues that will arise around the return to the workplace. So, Paul, just turning to you then, um, just from a UK perspective, maybe you could give us some reflections on what's happening on the ground there and if there's a similar type of return to work type protocol that you have. Absolutely. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Colleen, for involving me in this. It's a real pleasure to speak to colleagues uh, in Ireland. Um, uh, yes, I mean, we have similar legislation with um, uh, the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974 and the relevant acts. We've got the 1992 regulations dealing with PPE and the Employment Rights Act 96 dealing with whistleblowing as well as um, health and safety detriment and dismissal. What I thought might be interesting is because there's a more aggressive um, release of lockdown in the UK currently, um, we may be a few weeks ahead of you in terms of some of the practical experience of what's happening. And on Monday, about a million retail workers returned to work. And uh, the job of doing a risk assessment for those workers and the kinds of situations now being faced by employees is possibly uh, quite fundamentally different to the kind of questions that HR and employers have had to deal with for some time. You know, PPE and masks and visors and shields for people in shops. Um, you know, that's, that's quite a new issue when you think that, you know, you expect mask wearing and visor wearing and this sort of thing to be in hospitals. And so there's a lot um, of questions coming up on that. Vulnerable workers. How do you deal with someone who's living with a vulnerable person and they want special treatment um, or they have um, an immune condition themselves and they, they want adjustments? And what if those people don't have an issue and they, they, they are making the choice to come into work and you're worried? about the duty of care to them. We're getting questions about people saying, well, I've, I've had COVID, so you don't need to worry about me, or I've had an antibody test, and, um, and therefore um, I don't need to follow the same rules. There's some tricky questions and advice topics coming up for employers on that, and uh, you know, dealing with um, uh, 
uh, the kind of social distancing or work distancing, whether it's a two meter rule or whatever. And, and you're seeing retail shops with all sorts of different arrangements in terms of queuing systems um, and trying to keep people apart. And um, there's sort of millions coming back to work is throwing up a lot of headaches for people over here. And it's, it, it's probable that some of those issues, a, a sort of close watching brief of what's happening in the UK might will help um, Ireland Irish practitioners um, solve some of these issues. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Um, and it's really interesting to know what is happening there on the ground in the UK from that perspective. And, and, and Judy, what, what's happening on the ground here, do you think? I mean, you know, that you run a hot, the Transparency Island runs a hotline. What's happening there? Yeah, I mean, we do. Um, we run a helpline which gives advice and referral for people who want to potentially raise a concern in the workplace. And we have had, you know, a spike in calls. We've had, um, you know, 103 calls January to June and 63 of these have been since the lockdown. So it's a massive percentage and there's a big increase in the number of people seeking advice or raising issues related to workplace concerns. I actually just saw a press release not that long ago in early June from the Community Law Centre in the north side of Dublin reporting a massive surge in consultations for free legal advice and almost 200% increase. Now, the press really said that these were mostly breaches of contract, unequal treatment and difficulty with accessing payments in terms of our own helpline. I mean, we would cover a range of sectors, but health would be one which would um, come to the fore. Manufacturing and um, had its difficulties and retail. These are all sectors which are featuring in terms of the callers to our helpline. I mean, it has been widely reported in the media in Ireland about the problems with the, the nursing homes and the meat industry sectors with COVID-19 cluster infections. But I think, you know, workers are seeking advice outside of their workplace. And, um, you know, I think it is an employer's duty to reassure them, you know, that they are safe as, they, as safe as they can be and that the measures are being put in place to protect them. Yes, I think uh, to some degree, we may be waiting for that second wave, that wave that's kind of hitting the UK kind of first almost in regard to all the kind of significant questions that are going to come around the return to work protocol. And maybe we're just not quite in the middle of that yet. Um, you know, it's in interesting to hear what you're saying about the community centres as well. And Paul, just for, from your perspective, you mentioned there the things that were going on. And are there any other specific issues in the UK that you're facing that I suppose, again, like you're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of what's happening on the ground there. Well, I think what's um, really interesting is that essentially there's been a revolution in employment law in the UK with nearly 10 million people on furlough, which means their employment contracts are continuing, but they're being paid by the state or largely by the state instead of their employer. And there's this extraordinary situation and a report yesterday that announced that around a one third of the employees who are working on furlough, which has an absolute express prohibition on performing any work for the employer because you're being paid by the state. One third of employees are being asked to work whilst um, on furlough. Um, that is throwing up an enormous amount of um, queries about what do you do when you're asked to work illegally when the, when the employer is claiming sums uh, on your behalf from the government. I have a case for, for a person working in the um, personnel industry where um, there are um, 30 employees and colleagues asked to work during furlough. Immediate, the day, immediately on the day they were put on furlough, 
with uh, messages being sent by the employer saying, uh, don't uh, don't forget that we'll be deciding who you take, who we take back on who works hardest during furlough. And, you know, and, and sending messages saying, what on earth are you doing all day? <laughs> um, so um, and that throws up a lot of difficult issues around um, getting witness statements from other people in that situation when they've been asked to work illegally as well. Um, how does the employer investigate itself of breaching furlough, furlough rules and very careful without prejudice discussions um, so that you um, separate the issues of principle and the issues of settlement? Because, of course, there are sensitive issues uh, in relation to that. Uh, and, and another huge issue is care homes. Um, and I'm sure that similar problems are emerging in Ireland. Uh, tragically, 15,000, um, at least 15,000 people have um, died in care homes. And, uh, you know, there's been a significant amount of illness and um, tragic loss of life for care home workers. I, I'm representing an individual um, with a care home whistleblowing case. And um, uh, it throws up a lot of issues about um, uh, the difference between on the ground provision of PPE and stockpiles. The difference between uh, professional PPE and homemade PPE, and a number of people are being asked to use homemade items. How do you deal with shift patterns where someone has to see 15 different patients, each of whom may be COVID related? Are they provided with fresh masks um, for each of those sessions or have to use the same one for, for a whole shift? And what do you do with people released out of hospital coming back to a care home and whether they are tested for COVID-19? Um, and I, I dare say there will be a large number of care home um, retaliation situations um, in Ireland as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, Paul. And just to clarify, are these cases being taken under the whistleblowing or kind of health and safety or is it a mixture of both? You kind of a tick all or have you actually issued proceedings just out of clarification? Yes. No, uh, lots of these are at a very early stage. And obviously one tries to resolve these things sensibly and um, as amicably as possible. Um, there are options for individuals to go under the health and safety protection and claiming that there is a detriment or dismissal by reason of a health and safety disclosure or, or their con concerns being raised about their safety or the safety of other people in the workplace. Um, but there are some anomalies there around the, the protection for workers or zero hours contracts as opposed to full time employ or employees. Um, and then there's the separate question in relation to um, the 1996 whistleblowing legislation, which talks about um, individuals being endangered. Um, and that's it's, an, it's never really clear exactly what that means and, and, and how, how far you have to go complaining about lack of PPE in order to satisfy the test that the health and safety of individuals is endangered. I, I would expect in, in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, a purposive approach to be adopted by the courts in terms of um, um, disclosures regarding possible infection, bearing in mind the the uh, huge consequences of people catching the illness. But there's going to be, a, I think there's going to be a huge amount of case law around the meaning of danger and what what does a health, what, what counts as a health and safety disclosure in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. And maybe that that will be something that will happen here too. And just, I suppose, just turning to the, the next part of, of the talk there, I, I wondered, Lauren, if, if you know, when people do have complaints, and if you're looking at it from, a, say, advising employers, and, you know, you think it from, look at it from their perspective, I mean, what do they do when they get a complaint in, or somebody expresses a concern, 
Um, they said, look, the checklist hasn't been complied of. What's the initial reaction? Do they have a separate policy or is it a health and safety issue or do they put it through the protected disclosure? I mean, what, what would be the appropriate advice that we'd be giving employers for those members of that advise employers? Yes, Colleen, in relation to employers, I think that in light of COVID, I would say that now is a very good time for them to review their policies, um, whether they have a protected disclosure policy in place, their grievance policy, their dignity at work policy, etc. And whilst employers might find after carrying out such a review, they need to update their policies in any event. My own view is that it is not necessary to have a separate COVID-specific policy. Essentially, a COVID-related complaint is a health and safety complaint and potentially a protected disclosure complaint, depending on the, the nature of it and the substance of the complaint. And so in my view, employers would be better off in assessing their existing policies and whether they stand up to scrutiny. Now, in relation to the the relevant legislation, I know Judy has touched upon it earlier um, in respect of the the relevant sections under the Protected Disclosures Act and also the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. And I agree uh, with Judy in that it's clear that there is a wider ambit uh, under the health and safety legislation rather than the Protected Disclosures Act. Uh, The other thing to note is that Uh, As Judy has said, there is a five year limit on compensation under the Protected Disclosures Act, and that is also linked to loss of earnings, whereas an award under the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act is not capped and it's not related to loss of earnings. In the legislation, it provides for just and equitable compensation. And the case which Judy has uh, referenced uh, in the Workplace Relations Commission, which I know that the the employer wasn't represented at that, and I I suspect that that case will be appealed to the Labour Court. Um, But certainly it's a reflection on the level of award that can be made under the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. Now, turning to uh, the situation where if an employer is faced with a complaint by an employee, that that employee feels that, the, for example, the measures which have been put in place by that employer against COVID are not adequate. The employer needs to take the complaint seriously. They need to address it and investigate it in the normal way in which they would when a matter of health and safety is brought to their attention. Like it might be as simple as not enough hand sanitizer or lack of soap in a bathroom, or it could be at the other end of the scale, a more serious health and safety complaint, such as lack of PPE, if it's if it's a requirement for PPE in that particular workplace setting, issues in relation to physical uh, distancing and so on. And of course, in the COVID scenario, there is a risk that if an employer doesn't take an employee's COVID-related complaint seriously, that employee could refer the matter to the HSA and an employer does need to mitigate against that scenario. My own view is that employers should not get bogged down with trying to work out under which policy they should treat such a complaint. It's more important that they need and that they need to deal with the complaint sensitively and also with some degree of urgency. And ultimately, the, the, the bigger issue and another issue is whether an employee is actually penalised or threatened with penalisation by an employer, which would obviously leave the employer open to a claim either under the Protected Disclosures Act or the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act. So therefore, employers do need to be cognisant of how they treat an employee 
who makes any COVID-related or otherwise health and safety uh, complaint. Now, Judy has referred to uh, the section in the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act concerning circumstances of danger in which an employee believes uh, to be serious and imminent. And I do think that there is potential in the COVID scenario for an employer to be faced with such a situation. That is where an employer or an employee rather is in work and says to their manager that they feel that they're in serious and imminent danger. And the question then arises as to how does an employer deal with this scenario? Well, first, I would say the employer will need to establish the specifics of the employee's complaint and make full inquiries on it. And the employer should be in a position to give the employee reassurance and also be able to counteract the employee's concerns by showing that the workplace is in compliance with the relevant requirements and is safe. And again, that comes back to our return to work safely protocol and where an employer can show that they have complied with the protocol. So, for example, where they can point to the checklist and they have the supporting documentation to show that they have a workplace which is compliant. Then employers shouldn't be overly concerned by such a complaint. If they have complied with the return to work protocol, if they have collaborated with their, their employees and also continue to keep open lines of communication with their employees, that is all part of the mitigation for employers against the risk of any claim, either under the Protected Disclosures Act or the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. And I think just two interesting uh, points um, for practitioners to note. One um, is in relation to a recent High Court decision, uh, which was handed uh, down in February of this year in Barana and Rostera Meats. It's a useful decision because there is a very good discussion in it on whether a complaint uh, in which an employee made that he wanted to change roles as he was in pain, whether that complaint was a grievance or a protected disclosure. The Labour Court held that it was a grievance and not a protected disclosure, and that was upheld uh, by the High Court in the uh, appeal on the point of law. The second thing for practitioners to note is that the statutory instrument uh, of 2015 Code of Practice on the Protected Disclosures Act is also a useful reference point. It provides a model whistleblowing policy and also under Section 30 of that code, it outlines the difference between a grievance and a protected disclosure and gives uh, examples of each. So I would say that that is a very useful tool uh, and as I said, a, a good reference point uh, for, for practitioners uh, when they are assessing and advising employers in relation to such complaints. Thanks, Lauren. That's a really fantastic kind of guidance there. And I suppose it's such a such an unusual situation because it's such an infectious and dangerous disease. And I think when we were talking about it in preparation for this call, I think Paul used the term, it's like almost like a chemical weapon. And, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that employers are under a clear obligation and that this is a very significant and real health and safety issue. It's the biggest health and most significant health and safety issue I think that any employer will ever face, uh, certainly in my lifetime. And, yeah, th th that's a very good constructive way to sort of dissect and approach it. And, you know, certainly my view, and, and I go back to it, health and safety has taken centre stage here. And really, this is really what it's, it's, it's all about.
Now, I know also that there has been some discussion around the whistleblowing directive as well, and it just might be useful as well that there's got some changes afoot. And I know that Transparency Ireland is involved in consultation. And maybe, Judy, you could just reflect on that for us and as to what the consult about the, the, the proposed directive and the ongoing consultation. Yes, I mean, there is um, a directive that was agreed in the European Union last year. The Department of Public Expenditure and Reform has opened its consultation. It closes on the 10th of July 2020. And for anybody who may wish to contribute to that, I mean, clearly this isn't an open-ended situation. We would have been very heavily involved in helping the drafting of the Protected Disclosures Act. So I suppose essentially the yardstick is the directive and that has already been agreed. So um, most people, you know, are if you have been following it or have a particular interest in it, you know, we know what's kind of down the line. I think that Transparency International Ireland in particular and the Legal Advice Centre would welcome many of the changes that are afoot. I mean, the mission statement of our Legal Advice Centre is towards an Ireland where those who speak up about wrongdoing are treated fairly. And I suppose sometimes I think um, I would always add on to that and taken seriously. And I think that ties in nicely, Lauren, with what you were saying. I mean, just any complaint, any grievance, just, you know, reassure your employee you know, keep the channels of communication open and don't leave them hanging. Just keep talking to them. And, you know, things generally tend to work out okay. in terms there 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 will be changes during the scope of the protected disclosures mechanism will now be extended to volunteers and those in the recruitment process. And that's something that transparency had been lobbying for, you know, in the last round of legislation. Um, we would be particularly mindful of those working in the charity sector who are volunteers and may come across, you know, things that they wish to report and wouldn't have the protections of a whistleblower. Then we also welcome the changes in relation to, you know, almost a mandatory investigation obligation, although it's not quite um it doesn't say that you have to investigate, but, you know, it does say that you have to um, take it seriously. And I just have forgotten the, the phraseology in the directive. But um, there is also, you know, obligations on time limits. I think you have to acknowledge receipt of a protected disclosure within seven days and return to the discloser within three months to reassure them that, you know, you have um, kind of looked at what they have raised I mean, in my practice, I would see, you know, um, whistleblowers being left for a long time um, without any correspondence, you know, any um, acknowledgement even. So we are really looking forward to that tightening up because, you know, it does all go back to reassurance, communication and problem solving. Um, I don't know, Lauren, um, if you have looked at it or have anything to add in terms of the changes in the legislation. Yeah, well, I suppose um, what I would say is that it is definitely more expansive than the current uh, whistleblowing regime. And it's it's clear from um, looking at the directive that the Protected Disclosures Act that we have will need to be significantly amended uh, before the end of next year uh, in order to comply with the directive. And some of the main changes that I noted, um, first of all, there's the extension to the private sector. Um, as you know, the Protected Disclosures Act that we have in, currently in place requires only public sector employees or employers rather to have a whistleblowing policy in place. And the directive extends that obligation to the private sector. 
There's now a mandatory requirement for companies with 50 or more employees to establish internal reporting channels and to follow up on reports of breaches of EU law and to provide protection for certain whistleblowers against retaliation. There's also an extension of the reporting persons. As you've said, uh, the directive expands its protections from workers to uh, other examples uh, such as legal as well as natural persons, shareholders, volunteers, unpaid interns and trainees. Uh, there is also the extension of the definition of relevant wrongdoings and it is going to include breaches of financial services, uh, prevention of money laundering and terrorist financing, public procurement, data protection, consumer protection, to name but a few. That's only a few examples of that ex the extension of, of that uh, relevant wrongdoings provision. There's also the extension of the definition of penalisation, uh, which uh, the, the directive includes further acts of penalisation, such as the withholding of training, negative performance assessment or employment references, ostracism, failure to convert a temporary employment contract into a permanent one, harm to a person's reputation, and, and the list goes on. Uh, as you've said, Judy, there's, there's going to be the introduction of tighter timeframes uh, for employers in dealing with protected disclosures. And another interesting feature is uh, the reference to access to legal aid. And the directive imposes a qualified obligation to ensure that a reporting person has access to legal aid. And the reference there is to it being in accordance with national law. And it remains to be seen how that will be dealt with or addressed in this jurisdiction, given that our current employment law rights regime does not provide for legal aid. Therefore, I suppose what I would say is that employers who have an existing policy will need to assess it in line with the directive. And those employers who will be coming within the scope of the directive will need to establish a whistleblowing policy when the directive is implemented here. That's great. Thanks, Laura and Judy. So some significant changes there. Um, potentially for the PDA as a result of the directive, very wide-reaching. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And I suppose just turning back then uh, as to what we're all doing on the ground, another thing that came up when we had our preparation call was what the pro bono opportunities are there, because this is, and as I've already said, this is such a significant, you know, new infectious, lethal and dangerous disease that, you know, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime scenario that we're all facing. And Paul, I know that you're involved in some sort of pro bono opportunities because often, like in all these scenarios, it's often the most vulnerable that are the most affected and have the most limited resources to challenge a situation. Did you have any, do you perhaps share with the, um, with the members uh, your approach to that in the UK on any pro bono opportunities that might arise? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that issue is thrown up by um, the whistleblowing helplines in the UK being un, un, inundated with phone calls, the Protect Helpline and others. There, I, I saw yesterday that there were 3,000 calls logged in relation to fraud to the HMRC helplines, the, the, the government helplines, about whistleblowing. And lots of these people are um, uh, have no legal representation. They may not be union members. Um, they may be relatively junior and, and they, they wouldn't have access to much um, legal funds at a time where everyone is, is, is um, you know, struggling. So um, there have been um, a number of cases where um, consultation committees, um, employee representative committees have sought legal advice. And that's an area where I think you can potentially do a favour by helping 
hundreds or if, if not thousands of people sort of um, look at the redundancy consultation process and giving them ideas about ways of um, avoiding redundancies or um, extending notice or improving the terms. Um, for those that have to litigate, um, I have um, been involved in some cases where I think they're sufficiently important that um, um, I'd like to do the work on a pro bono basis. I think that's the right thing because the cases are um, really, really need, need to be heard. And, and in other cases, um, being willing to accept, for example, just a percentage of any settlement um, uh, down the line as, as a means of providing some cover of the legal costs, because those claims can be very hard fought or, um, or perhaps using an insurance policy to, 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 to cover some of the costs. And taking on cases perhaps that I wouldn't otherwise take on, but I think that we're sort of everyone needs to pull together. And one example of that was there's a very interesting project. I don't know if people in, in, in Ireland have seen this, but the FT ran a global hackathon, which was about the challenges thrown out to lawyers around the world in relation to COVID-19. And it, it arranged to how to improve um, law firm systems, um, homeworking, uh, all sorts of very interesting technological ideas, nearly about 200 ideas thrown up by lawyers around the world as to as to how to improve things in the, and, and respond to COVID-19. I, I was um, fortunate to be involved in chairing a, um, a group which looked at the lack of powers in the UK to deal with COVID-19 fraud, um, the helplines not answering and not having resources. And so we, uh, me with a number of legal colleagues uh, from across the industry, put the proposal for um, the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission or the uh, HMRC to be given emergency powers to investigate, uh, uh, to have a helpline to provide legal support and advice. Because bearing in mind the eye-watering amounts being spent by the government, the capacity for fraud is absolutely enormous. And, and to have a proper system where individuals can report that fraud and stop that fraud would, would surely pay pay back. And so uh, we, our, our sort of overall idea was that the Office of Whistleblower, which is a um, campaign which is getting increasing profile and support in the UK, is going to take some time and, and watch this space because I think it will come in in the UK at some stage. But in the meantime, we suggested an emergency powers. And so if you if you want to get if, you, if your uh, members want to get more information, look up the FT um, Global Legal Hackathon. That's fantastic. Thanks, Paul. And really interesting. And Judy, what about, any, is there, from a local perspective, what, what are the opportunities for people that want to contribute on a pro bono basis? Yes, well, I mean, the Transparency Legal Advice Centre has scarce resources, as I'm sure um, many other law centres um, across Ireland. We have um, funding from the department for one full-time solicitor, so we don't do litigation services. We just can't, you know, um, so we give legal advice only. And it would be in order to, you know, help our clients just make sure that they are protected when they are speaking up and to inform them of their rights. Then we would refer if they were in need of litigation advice, you know, to and kind of match them up with firms that we believe, you know, would be suitable. Um, we have had various offers of pro bono advice and essentially what we would really look for would be, you know, an initial free consultation just maybe some advice on merits and we obviously give limitation advice and that as soon as um you know the client comes in and um, so it would be probably consultation advice and you know then the, the person who potentially has been penalized or dismissed you know can make a decision as to whether they want to litigate 
Um, so that would be where we would be at. Um, we do refer particularly to those firms that we know have represented, you know, some of Ireland's kind of more high profile whistleblowers in the past. It's delicate and, and people are under, um, whistleblowers are under stress, as, as you can imagine. So we do do our referrals, you know, as cautiously as, as we can as well. But, you know, we do use volunteers, mostly law students. And um, somebody said, you know, the charities, regulator charities are just in a perfect storm at the moment because we can't avail of voluntary services because of COVID. And we're at the middle of a peak in demand for our services. Um, so the uh, other thing to mention and to close on possibly is that, you know, the directive does talk about a government obligation to provide, you know, legal support to whistleblowers. So as Lauren said, we just need to watch the space and see how the government, you know, intend to respond to that down the line as well. And probably keeping an eye on what the what the UK do um, in terms of their own consultations. Obviously, they won't be bound by the directive. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um. Colleen, um, one other thing that um, your members might find interesting from the practical experience of the UK is what seems to be a, an absolute revolution in the way that the courts and tribunals are changing in response to COVID-19. Uh, I've been an employment judge since 2005 um, in, in the UK, and the, this current situation is is incredible. The the pressures on staff, employment judges who may be vulnerable, um, availability of courts to have hearings, travel restrictions, is is currently leading to potential delays of up to two years in the listing of cases in the employment tribunal. So I'm aware of a case yesterday that uh, parties were seeking a hearing for a five-day hearing and the listing given was May 2022. But in response, there, there is a, a, a real sense that, that, it'll, that things will massively change, that almost sort of uh, necessity is a mother of invention. There is evidence from the commercial courts that without prejudice settlements have gone up from 30% to 70% through the, the desire to move things on and not wait for so long to have the hearings. There's been a big increase in use of, use of judicial mediation, um, even by telephone and having judges give their views um, at, a, at an earlier basis. The, the UK tribunals are about to roll out what's called a cloud video platform, which is going to provide the availability for video evidence, but possibly from all the parties to have no one in the tribunal at all, or a hybrid system whereby you have the peripheral witnesses by video um, and um, the key ones in presence at a court. And these are all things that we could probably have done um, many years ago, but the, the, the appetite for change is enormous. And you have a president, a new president of the Employment Tribunal, who, who clearly has a passion for technology and, and a desire to, to meet the challenge of COVID-19. And um, it really is that the, the, the old days of sort of video evidence being uh, extreme exception is, is, is changing hugely. And I think that uh, to the extent that it hasn't already happened in Ireland, um, in the courts, I would imagine that when when everyone sees how court hearings can be held remotely, how they can uh, there can be judicial intervention in settlement at an earlier stage, how you can deal with inconvenience or the the health challenges of an in person hearing, uh, it's it really is very interesting and and um, 
uh, I think that uh, it's never going to be the same again. Uh, there's so many people are saying that seeing how well it works and how, how you can have electronic hearings, uh, and I imagine the same will apply in Ireland. That's fantastic. Um, and actually, I think that you must have a sixth sense because that is actually what the next ELA podcast will be on. Uh, that okay. virtual hearings and every and you might have talked yourself into a position. We might be contacting you again, particularly in your role as a, an employment judge. If, I, if people can bear <laughs> to hear from me, because I mean all those comments that you made, um, and I think you're right. You know, it's it's no going back to normal. There's a sea change, and you know it's taken this um, kind of momentous um, virus to sort of move us all along into a space where we probably should be. So just to wrap up for now, I just want to say thank you so much to my fantastic panel, to Lauren, Judy and Paul. Um, I hope that you all enjoyed listening to the podcast and please do tune in to our next podcast, as I say, which will be on remote workplace hearings. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.